it's a little bit scary because I feel like there's more and more and more content, but now what? Like, people are drowning. It's also a bit of a misconception that you need motivation first in order to learn. I would call it a myth. The idea that adults are good at what we call self-directed learning is not correct. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Marketing for Learning podcast. I am so delighted to share this interview that I did with Miriam Nealon recently. If any of you haven't heard of Miriam Nealon, she is a very, very evidence-informed L&D. Um, she's constantly tackling myths and challenges in our industry and is now working heavily in a learning role at Novartis and joined me to really talk a little bit more about what evidence-informed L&D really looks like. Um, but as you can expect, we talk a lot about audience emotions. We talk about how we're actually, uh, as an industry, still fixated on challenges such as learning styles and how we actually overcome or finally put them in the sea. This conversation was a really, really interesting insight because I, for one, have observed quite a lot of different learning science um, that I think mimics or echoes much of the psychology and logic that we see applied in marketing strategy. So I dig into some of that with Miriam and try to more deeply understand how far this overlap truly goes between marketing and learning. It's a snackable 40 minutes, I have to say, um, but please do excuse the tiny glitches in Miriam's audio. Um, we were just having some connectivity issues throughout, so if there's some little pops and glitches, just bear with us. Um, it's just the quality of the audio is what it is, and we can only make so much magic happen. Nevertheless, it's a really interesting conversation. I've just listened to it again, and I'm so proud to be able to present such an insightful data and evidence-led individual on this podcast. So whilst not directly related to marketing, we touch on quite a lot of themes that sit across both disciplines um, and explore really what uh, data means for the future of learning and development. So strap on in, folks. It's set to be a good one. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Marketing for Learning podcast. I am joined today by a fantastic guest, a lady I have followed on LinkedIn for a very long time. She's incredibly wise and very well researched in the world of learning and development. Stop smirking at me. Um, this is me being joined by Miriam Nealon. Miriam, hi. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with me today. Hey, Ashley, I'm very happy to be here. I am smirking if somebody calls me wise. Yes. <laughs> hey, it takes a while to get that accolade, but I think you're there for sure. So for those, I mean, like I said, I think you're probably relatively well known in our industry, but for those who aren't familiar with who you are, would you mind maybe just spending a minute or two giving us a bit of info on your background, what you're up to at the moment? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm Miriam. I have been in L&D for about 15 years or so, um, started as an instructional designer, e-learning developer, and then slowly moved into more like 
strategic role. So currently I'm head of learning design and learning sciences. I really love my title at Novartis. And so I want to make a disclaimer at this point to say I'm here today as Miriam. So not representing uh, Novartis. I'm just talking here as myself. Um, so currently, in my current role, I am responsible for building capabilities for learning professionals. So basically, uh, my job is to help learning professionals at Novartis to build their capability in the learning experience design space. Oh, brilliant. So you're actually, you're training, not train the trainers, training the but trainer. you're training. Well, yeah. kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to figure out what the best way is, but yeah, kind of meta. It's a bit meta. That's, That's like, cool, though, because I think, you know, at least in my experience, I, you know, the kind of cobbler's son shoes and all that. I don't see us always, or L&D practitioners, always having the time uh, to feel like they can actually develop themselves and evolve their thinking, embrace new, you know, new research, new sciences, things like that. So for you to have that role in an organization is amazing. It is actually uh, quite rare, I think, that a role like that exists. And uh, the way I've been doing it so far without going into details, but to kind of have a combination of working with the business so that I understand, you know, what the reality looks like and then trying to build case studies, tools, methodologies that then others can use, but also learn from others. Uh, so it's a big community thing as well, where we work together to figure out uh, what good looks like. Although I must say, like my vision on Evidence-informed learning design is quite strong. So that's, you know, one of the reasons that I was hired. So that's really what I'm trying to drill into the organization, which is not an easy task. No, it's, I mean, it's a big, it's a big ship, isn't it? Steering it in a different direction, I expect, is is very, very hard. So I think, but like you said, you know, actually even being evidence-led, you know, again, not not always a trait that I see a lot. Like we had um Peter Manish Reber on the podcast recently and you know he's got Derek Mitchell there who's just purely around analytics at um, Novo Nordisk yeah. and you know they they again are just very data-led so you know are data informed I suppose is probably a better uh, stance on it rather than data-led but you know I, I am starting to see more emergence of an emphasis on you know data especially business data impact data things where we can really pr- start to prove our value as a learning function are you kind of seeing a similar thing across the market or yeah, we actually, uh, well, we were just going through a reorg. So my, my colleague, uh, who was originally on my team has now moved to another team, but we, we also have a specific role, like a learning impact, learning insights role, uh, which, you know, is specifically focused on how do we think about impacts and how do we start to think about it from the very start? Mm. Um, and also, yeah, how do we collect and aggregate data that we can then use to make better informed decisions? overall so that's great yeah and I think you know for me that getting it right from the start is quite an interesting angle isn't it you know especially as we come towards the end of a new finance another financial year I know a lot of our clients and a lot of professionals are in the kind of planning stage of you know what to actually do for the next year you know how do we actually deliver more impact how do we truly get a positive sentiment towards learning in our organization do you obviously, you know, I don't without kind of going into strategies that you're actually executing in your organization and whatnot, what's your opinion or do you, what's your kind of hot take on what might be coming uh, from a, like a trending learning mm-hmm. perspective? Is there anything that is, you know, barring AI, which everyone was talking about, I'm yet to see it being applied, but. 
Well, so I usually don't, um, I'm not very big on hot takes or trends. And the reason is that I feel that we still haven't built the foundation of our practice very well. So I am still personally focused on that foundation. So that to me is, you know, what's the need? Um, does the need to be solved by learning? If so, what type of need is it? Is it knowledge? Is it skills? If it's skills, if it is it simple skills? Is it complex skills? What does that mean for your design approach? Thinking about that impact strategy from the very start, doing user research to understand people's reality, um, thinking about the learning engagement, you know, from the very start and how you want to tackle that and what you're trying to achieve and what success looks like and all that stuff. Um, so to me. I mean, the trends, I don't know. I just am personally not that interested in trends because they come and go. And I actually feel that the trends, the focus on trends have distracted us a little bit from building that foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, things like, you know, from what I remember since I've been like a trend has been mobile learning. Okay, well, that has kind of like kicked in because simply because people use these devices all the time. So, okay, yeah that has had consequences for how you need to design. AI is probably going to be big. I'm not an expert on it, but, you know, that will evolve quite quickly, I think. And, and we should definitely figure out, like, what that means for for our practice. But anyway, long story short, I do, I do see a bit of a shift, though, where people start to talk more holistically about learning, which I'm really happy with. Mm. I see more conversations around, you know, the performance consulting, uh, wearing that hat. Um, Evidence informed in general, I think, is getting a bit hip and trendy, which is nice in one way and a bit tricky in another way, because there's also a lot of evidence that's not really evidence, but just presented as evidence. So there's always a bit of that, I think. But also a shift to more, I see more people talk about task focus, like the context of the work and really thinking about what things mean in the context of the work. So I think there are good things, but when you when you talk about budgeting and planning. To me, what I would hope is that organizations would really think about where should we invest? And that sounds really simple, but it's not because mm-hmm. I think we've moved to to kind of like a, a way of thinking where we talk a lot about content and libraries and how is your user generated content. So it's, to me, it's all a bit scary because I feel like there's more and more and more content but now what like people are drowning and it's yeah I I am actually quite worried about that trend yeah and I mean it's definitely a a a theme that we see with our customers a lot where they'll have a lot of systems with a lot of content libraries and the truth of the matter is learners and employees just don't know where to go what to do when they get there they're absolutely inundated and you know obviously from a user journey perspective how are we ever going to build habits when the first or second experience they have is just complete overwhelm you know so I'm absolutely with you I think you know we need to take a step back and you know actually be led more by what's required from the business rather than you know being order takers kind of breaking down some of those barriers for sure in terms of you know, just because someone says they need a, an e-learning module on X, Y, or Z doesn't mean that they need an e-learning module. And I think it's up to us to have more professional curiosity about why people are asking for that stuff. Is it just because they think that's the only way people learn or is that the only way we can deliver learning in a corporate or um, infrastructure? You know, so I think, you know, I think that why is where we've got to start. Absolutely. 
I think that the biggest challenge for most of us is is unpicking that gargantuan machine that we've made. You know, how do you how do you go back to baseline when you've invested significantly in tech and platforms and content and the delivery methods that sit behind that? Starting from scratch is 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 nigh on impossible, would you say? I would say so, yes. I, and I think that that's not going to happen because you're right. Like uh, organizations have invested a lot of money in, you know, things like LXPs and all kinds of other systems. I think the infrastructure is usually there, but and I think there's in in general nothing wrong with the infrastructure. I do think that organizations need to use more data to figure out to what extent these platforms or or tools or other types of technologies are actually used and what they're used for. I think often they're false without having a clear strategy of funds, like what we're trying to achieve with them, which, okay, if that has happened, that's fine. You can still think about that, you know, after you've invested in it. Um, but I think to to create more clarity around that, like what are we trying to achieve? When are you, when are we using what? Um, thinking about that, what you're saying, like that the user experience, like if we have all these different platforms, then how are we going to make it one nice user experience for the user, you know? But also when I think about content libraries, and I see that in, in Novartis as well, is that what I think is really difficult is to, to create a context around the content. So you see a lot of content, but then to create a narrative around that and to help people understand how one piece of content is connected to the other. I think there's a big misconception uh, or even a, it's it's I would call it a myth. The idea that adults are good at what we call self-directed learning mm. is not correct. We're not, except when we're experts and we really know what we're looking for and we really know what we don't know. But in general, we're not good at it. And it's even worse in this case because what we do is we drown people in a in a sea of content. And then if they don't learn what they need, we'll say, well, it's up to you. You know, we're offering you a self-directed learning experience. Yeah. Well, no, we're overwhelming people and we're expecting them to navigate. <laughs> yeah, it's then where's the motivation? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, with my marketer's hat on, I look at that as where's the motivation to engage with the product? You know, it's it's missing a piece for me around the why. And certainly through, you know, countless discovery sessions that we've had with clients, there's I'm, I've never failed to be staggered by the amount of learning content that doesn't seem to relate to the task at hand or the role yeah. that they do or even their career aspirations. There just is a lot of stuff. And like, you know, with the best will in the world, there's a lot of stuff on the internet. I don't go around Googling, you know, how how to start painting or something like that. That's that's not going to, I'm not going to be overrun by that desire to go and learn something new necessarily. But if I have a specific need or a desire to learn to paint or, you know, so suddenly I'm, I'm shoved into an art class for some reason, then my reason for needing to go and explore that will change. That's exactly the same with our, our employees. You know, at the moment, they either don't know where to go, so they'll default to the internet and they'll still they'll solve their issues that way. But as long as our, our learning isn't really kind of positioned in a place where it's solving problems and actually do, servicing the individual, I think that, you know, we're going to continue to run into challenges. But that's exactly it, right? Because I think that whole idea of the point of need and then go to explore, that's will only work, I mean, yes, but that to me is more 
uh, a search thing, like, and to, you know, to make sure that people can, can search and that your search works well and that people can find information at the point of need. Uh, that is to me something different than they, when you have to learn something. Mm. So you can find, um, I actually, I was, um, repairing my flat tire over the weekend, um, uh, my bike, which I, I mean, my dad taught me that, but anyway, I have a need. So I might go on YouTube and see how to do it, and I might be able to do it. It still doesn't mean I've learned it necessarily in one go, right? I'm, I no. might need to repeat it. So, yep. so there's a difference between, I don't think we make that distinction clear enough between, okay, people need to find the right information at the point of need to be able to do something well at that point in time. That doesn't mean they've learned it. That's fine, as long as they are able to complete tasks successfully at that point in time. But then if you want to design to learn, then a completely different process kicks in because then it goes back to what you were saying. What's the context in which people need to learn this? What does it take to learn this? Like, um, do they need to remember facts or do they just need to practice or whatever? You need to ask all that type of questions. And then the content is only only going to get you so far. I recently uh, designed like a learning design foundations journey and I did it with mostly curated content, but still a lot a lot of work because mm. you have to make sure that people understand like how this one bit of a piece of content that already existed. So it's not exactly the same language as the previous, you know, so you have to help people to connect the dots and to create that narrative and to explain that it's still design. So obviously you've mentioned evidence-informed learning design a few times. Can you explain a little bit more to me what that is and how that kind of deviates from maybe the more traditional instructional design approaches that have existed? Ooh, I don't know how it, how, let me start by explaining what it is. So it has like three types of evidence that you use to inform design decisions. So it would be your experience and expertise it would be uh, systems data and stakeholders so so evidence from systems and stakeholders and the third pillar would be uh, evidence from the learning sciences so there's three different types of evidence that you would use to make decisions um, as you go it's a difference from like evidence-based in the sense that evidence-based is, is really like root like how you say that grounded in um in the medical world so it's really about you know using really high uh, quality evidence to make decisions for individual patients so in our world that's a bit different because you always have to be quite careful how you interpret evidence especially from the sciences because it's a bit softer i mean it's it's better than nothing so you mm. still need to use it um but you always have to kind of like test them evaluating your specific um, context um, you ask how it's different from like traditional instructional design. Um, I think traditional instructional design uh, also gathers evidence, um, for example, by working with subject matter experts and gather evidence around, you know, what does the, the learning, what needs to be learned, what does that look like? Uh, I don't know to what extent it actually um triggers people to use the evidence that we have from the learning sciences um so i mean instructional design is more like a, a process right and you use the evidence within the process to make decisions um so yeah it's not necessarily something different it's more at a different level 
Yeah. So it's actually, you know, to me, it sounds like a more iterative process, you know, one where you're actually kind of constantly feeding in information that you get from some of your initiatives and pulling them back in to help you improve and evolve. Yeah, I think you can, you can, I mean, I, I usually think about it as um, I use the, the knowledge that I have on, you know, what's, um, what's known uh, through the learning sciences. I know that to make better informed decisions initially. So I know, for example, that if people need to remember something, well, then you need to design space learning because people just remember better if you space things out over time. So there's just certain things that we know about how people learn that you should use to make your design decisions. So that's, to me, is one way of looking at it. But then the iterative approach kicks in a little bit later where you have designed something and then you test and evaluate and make sure that it works the way you intended it to work or you ask your users to you know, test it for you and think out loud, for example, like, do they interpret things the way you intended, you know, the activity to be or whatever. So I think that way, so that's the user evidence then or the evidence from the testing. So yeah, there's just all kinds of different evidence that you need to use. Yeah, I love that, though, actually being being more data led and, and, you know, actually actually allowing us to have wider insight into it rather than just developing something and kind of, again, just throwing it into the LMS and going, yeah, here you go. I made you that lovely thing. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I tell you what, people loved it. You know, I think actually having more discerning uh, about our own output, our own work and and having a, a desire to improve and evolve what we do, you know, that I mean, good marketers do the same thing, right? Like we, you know, we do campaigns that flop or fail and we feed that information back into our initiatives, our approaches to help us do better and better understand our audiences. Everything's one big giant experiment, really. <laughs> yeah, I always say like, I distinguish between evaluation for success and evaluation for improvement. So I think those are two completely different things. Like it's a completely different way of thinking what you need to measure, right? Mm. What, what, what in your mind does, because obviously you mentioned light learning impact a few times earlier on in our conversation, like what to you is success for a learning function? And I know that's a very like ethereal question. It's kind of a, a bit fluffy, but. For a learning function. So I was going to say my, my colleague told me this phrase that I actually have here on my desk. Impact is defined by the problem, which I really oh. uh, like as a, yeah. So so it depends, right? Mm. Um, and also I wrote down because I couldn't remember it, but I kind of want to read out loud. So what he uses in his framework is, uh, shout out to Duchamp here, mm. um, impact is defined as the difference in the indicator of performance with the interventions and without the interventions. So what difference does it make, right? Um, so I really like that that way of thinking. So for a learning function, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it does, though, right? I mean, you know, it, it's a kind of an intentionally difficult question, because I think that's the point, isn't it? Because there's got to be a balance between what the business wants from us, but also yeah. what the learner needs, and finding some, some marriage between the two, right? Like, how do we achieve business objectives through learning initiatives, i.e. engaging audiences and developing, you know, range of sophisticated learning solutions, whatever, but we still got to meet that. To me, it's driven by the business need, right? But I don't, 
again, maybe your experience is different. A lot of organizations that we work with and people I've had conversations with, they're not typically learning-led organizations. So the learning function in general isn't necessarily under a huge amount of scrutiny, certainly more so now as we enter a a very questionable economic time. Um, But for the most part, it's not necessarily been a function that is looked at to deliver impact in the way that maybe sales or marketing is, for example. Yet they carry substantial budgets. I've always found it a really fascinating dynamic. I also think there's a difference, right? So that's why I was fascinated by your addition as a learning function, because I think there is the impact from the requester side. And I think it's our job to ask them these questions, right? So when they come to us and they say they have a need, so let's say this is the ideal client and they say, we have a need. We don't really know what the solution looks like. That's why we come to you, right? Woohoo, that's a really, really great situation to be in. But I think it's up to us then to ask like, okay, what are you trying to achieve? How do you know it's been successful, right? So that's that's one. So from a learning function perspective, I would say that's one part of it. Mm-hmm. One part is that you have these conversations with the business and that you make sure that you find ways to measure impact for them. But I also think as a learning function, there are other impact impact metrics to consider, such as um, if you think about your your let's say your uh, part of your strategy is that you really want um, to um, put your experts on this on you know in the spotlight and so you really big on user generated content and so then for example uh, some kind of knowledge sharing index could be uh, an, an impact metric to say yeah we since we are doing this like we're just sharing way more you know information flows like way, way more transparently, it's way easier to, for people to find uh, the expertise that they need at the point in time or whatever. I mean, it really depends. And I think that whole learning culture and that way of thinking is also part of being a good learning function. It's not mm-hmm. just about um, what the business is asking for. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, especially as well, like learning can play a good role in a big role in the EVP, for example, you know, and I think we, we almost need to envision ourselves as a bigger, bigger piece of the pie than maybe we're allocated at times. I think, you know, we need to get a bit too big for our boots and, you know, be a little bit more confident. And actually, we can add a lot of value, like, you know, at its core, I know it does sound corny, but really, learning and development can positively impact people's lives not a lot of I know it's it but it it is true you know if if, when done well you can help people progress their careers you can help them become more confident more capable more able you know and I think we get a bit lost in the kind of hairiness of it sometimes but at its core you know most learning professionals I I work with that I and I know they're hugely passionate about people they're hugely passionate about helping people develop Um, and I think sometimes we just get a bit entrenched in what the business is asking for, the tech um, is such a simple, quick kill solution that we we go for that instead of actually, again, what does the learner actually need? You know, what, what do they want and how can we best support that? Because, you know, going back to your point about your bike tire, you'll, you don't ever need to remember how to fix your bike tire because you can always go to YouTube. And so, you know, there's an element of relinquishing control of always also measuring every you know what does learning mean has learning happened you know the impossible question to answer sometimes we don't need to we don't need to know that learning's happened to know that we're enabling people to get stuff done but I think there is that bigger piece more you know more around 
helping them develop new skills. And I think that's where where your kind of evidence-informed stuff plays a much more dynamic role. You mentioned uh, spaced repetition earlier, and I, I'm not hugely familiar with the like in-depth detail of the science behind how, you know, how spaced repetition helps people learn. But I know that marketing campaigns really work because we consistently present an idea, a brand, a product, whatever it might be, consistently to people over a period of time in, able to, in order to enable us to create more memory recall around the brand product, whatever. Is, is that learning science? Am I just kind of basically applying that to marketing or is it the psychology behind it? Because to me, it's the same thing. It's basically repeating this the same idea uh in different ways over a period of time yeah i must say i think i think with marketing there's probably other elements to it that i know nothing about uh more also tapping into certain emotions maybe or you know desires or whatever but yeah from a learning perspective it is it is literally strengthening you know the memory trace uh, in your brain and ideally if you have space practice practice where people also have to do something then it's not only strengthening because you know if, if you if you trigger them to actively um take like retrieve something from long-term memory then you're not only strengthening the memory trace but also making it more flexible because the activities are usually you know slightly different or it happens in a slightly different context so it makes the learning it makes the traces stronger and it makes people more flexible so the flexibility you probably don't need for, for marketing. Uh, so my answer to your question is, I don't know. But I guess the the habitual, like that, the, the strengthening the memory trace could potentially be part of that. Yeah, because, you know, I, I think one of the things that fascinates me the most about marketing is like the psychology of humans, human behavior, why we do what we do and how you can influence that um, in such subtle ways. But I've always found the space repetition. I mean, to me, that is literally just a marketing campaign because, you know, we don't necessarily we don't send out the same image over and over again or the same blog post. You know, we we variate, we change things, we get people to do different stuff, send them to different places and spaces. It's it's basically the same logic just applied in a in a different manner. So, anyways, I I knew that you'd know more about it, and I've always I've always kind of like sat and pondered on it and gone, is that a thing? Is, is that I something? Think, but I think like, marketing is more in the behavioral science uh, angle, right? And of course, behavioral science plays into the learning sciences as well. But I just think that for marketing, there's more to it than, than just the strengthening of the memory, uh, the memory trace. I think there's probably something in, you know, triggering people's, I don't know, wants and needs or the, or the, even the perception that they need something that they actually don't necessarily need or mm. maybe do. But do you not think that we would need to do that to convince someone to do anything, even if it is to take undertake learning? I think it depends, not necessarily. I think I think for for um, certain learning needs it is important to tap into uh, emotions and uh, but it's subtle it's nuanced as well uh, because if you're triggering emotions too strongly people might not learn so it can also inhibit uh, learning if you if you go in in a direction that you know in an emotional direction where you don't need um, 
And also, you don't necessarily, it's also a bit of a misconception that you need motivation first in order to learn. Um, learning, like, you can also activate motivation through learning. So if you design something that people might initially, okay, they might maybe understand what's in it for them, but it might not necessarily be super motivated yet. But if it's something that's well designed, and as they go, they are, A, getting more on board because they start to see how it is relevant in their context and they start maybe to see the consequences of when they don't do it and then if they start to achieve success um that can trigger motivation so it's not it, it works in two directions hmm. so i don't think you always have to um consider that that behavioral element sometimes you do i think it kind of depends what it is yeah, like what you, what you what you're kind of trying to achieve, or you know, I guess again, we'll go back to the why, right? <laughs> Simon Sinek's golden circle. We're back at the why. <laughs> so, you know, the reason we kind of started having a conversation on LinkedIn, and when I asked you to come on this podcast, was something that crops up time and time again in our world of learning, and it's this learning myths and and some of the myths that are perpetuated in our industry over and over and over again. I know you have quite strong opinions on some of them, particularly like the Myers-Briggs and personality test ones um, and, you know, well, learning styles. Everybody's everybody's favorite. Why do you, I mean, well, we can absolutely talk about why why these are not valid theories for a start if, you, if you'd like to. But I'd also like to ask you, why do you think these continue to be perpetuated in, in our industry despite being wildly, widely debunked? I think because people um, people like simple concepts, uh, something that's easy to understand, um, and yeah, something to, to get your head around. But also because it makes sense to people. It's 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 how they experience learning themselves. So I think it has a lot to do with, especially with learning styles. Um, the whole you know it resonates with people that uh, the idea that we're all like different and you know we're all individuals and that's also almost like a cultural thing um in the in the in the west i would say you know like it's very focused on on individuals and it's very hard to accept for people that cognitively like our cognitive architecture is pretty much the same for for everyone um apart from some exceptions of course what people like with neurodiversity there are some some exceptions for sure but in general, um, it's just people don't like that idea because it gives them the sense that we're all the same. But that's not the same thing. Having, you know, we all have like, well, not, again, not all, but most people have two arms and, and two legs. That doesn't mean we're the same, mm. but it still means we have two arms and two legs. They're the same. Um, they're not exactly the same, but, you know, like it's people don't like that idea. I think that. um we all learn in the same way. It's just something they don't, they don't like. There's an infatuation with the kind of individualistic nature of our world these days anyways, isn't there? And exactly. I, I think like, especially Myers-Briggs, everyone loves to do a, a quiz about, oh, who am I? How do I think? Oh, I'm so, look, I'm so interested in, in oh, I didn't know this about myself. Hey, look at my star sign. Tell me something I don't know, you know, like, I think this like desire to more deeply understand ourselves on a subconscious level, yeah. I, to me, that's where that like the Myers-Briggs stuff comes from. 
the learning styles again I don't for me is it is it just it's an easy way to bucket content delivery and so it's kind of got conflated with like learning preferences because I'll give you an example not the same exactly from a learning perspective but when I'm researching something online on Google I'll almost always go open images first so if I'm like brainstorming something or I'm trying to be more creative I will always go look for visual stuff over text and stuff first but I'm way more comfortable writing things down and and actually you know getting stuff pen to paper so you know that to me that's not a learning style it's just how I prefer to access information in specific contexts yeah and then you have to ask everybody has preferences right but then you have to ask yourself like how effective is my behavior I mean you don't really know because there's no way to test this um I mean there would be but I mean we haven't done that at least I haven't looked into it so but the whole that's the whole idea with learning styles is the same right so people might have certain preferences that doesn't mean we should follow the preferences. Like if I have a preference for uh, sweets, that doesn't mean that I should follow that preference. Uh, so, so it's not always the case that your preferences are to be followed, you know? And in this case, the research clearly shows that following a preference and designing for a preference is not effective. In fact, it's, it's ineffective. So um, it depends on what you need to learn, where you are in the in the learning process, what the most um, effective design is. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. People experience this preference, and they they experience that as that 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 works for them. So it's just really hard for people to accept that that might not necessarily be the best way of doing it. Mm. And it's it's kind of a like you said it's, it's hard to disprove. It's a self fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Like I've got I've got no reason to think that the way that I'm doing something is ineffective. But if I if I try different, you know, if you actually experimented, you you would get an answer. But ultimately, we're creatures of habit, aren't we? And so we fall into our ways of managing information and and dealing with the world as it comes to us, don't we? So I, I can make a confession here. I mean, I know that space learning is better. I know that highlighting is not very effective, but I love to highlight sometimes. And when I read a book, I underline loads of things and then I make a lot of notes in the in the in the side. And I then I never look at it again and I don't remember any of it. But it gives me a <laughs> sense of like doing something useful and that I'm learning something. But it's it's because the other stuff, the space learning and making notes and then processing them, that's way more effortful. Like, I rather mm. have a sense of, oh, look at how productive I am. I'm taking the next book and then I underline again. <laughs> and I've read five books. <laughs> I, I think I've read like one book since my son's been born, unfortunately. I've, I've started about five. <laughs> but it's like we were saying as well, like there's an element of like human satisfaction in that we both have to-do lists with big items on them at the moment. So we're yeah. getting no satisfaction because nothing's getting exactly. scrubbed well, off the list. Short-term yeah. versus long-term, um, what's the word? Uh, satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I know I'm conscious that we're quite short on time here and I know you need to jump off in a few minutes. I think the one other thing I just really wanted to ask you is I know that you, you know, like I said, you do a, a lot of a lot of research yourself. You're very research led as a L&D practitioner. What's like what's the one thing from like a learning sciences perspective that you would want someone listening today to take away? Is there is there anything that kind of you see repeatedly time and time again that's done in error or that you kind of see people constantly making the same 
mistakes are the same choices that don't necessarily lean into the to the to the way people learn. Yeah, I, I think I'm just going to keep it really simple, given the fact, you know, just going back to the content piece, just think about, like, go back to the science and, and think about how people learn and how we process information. I think that is very basic, but really, really important. And just go back to things like Myers multimedia principles, you know, like look at how many, um, like how your uh, content is, is um display like on the on the on the screen for example uh, do you use signaling um stop doing like the redundant like voiceover with the text you know it's all quite simple but i think it can be quite uh, impactful if you if you follow the science and and just don't do something because it looks so pretty yeah uh, and 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 use like lovely colored themes that have nothing to do with the content and so are just distracting for people and causing cognitive overload so yeah think about our the limitations of our working memory and and what that means for designing information even yeah i love i've loved this conversation we've been so learner focused and everything we've discussed really you know if you really think about it we've talked very much about people as people, putting putting the learner at the center of why we're developing things, you know, and really answering those kind of core fundamental questions about how we can best serve our employees as a learner function, as a learning function. So thank you so much for getting my brain going and getting me thinking and sharing your insights with our audience here on the Marketing for Learning podcast. Miriam, it's been my absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much. Same here. And thank you so much for the invitation. And thanks for the chat. Thank you. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your evening and I will see you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye.